Welcome to 360 North. I'm your host, Frank Dissier Burns. This episode is part two of my conversation with Karen Ryan, who is a curator at the Canadian Museum of History, who helped put together the Franklin Expedition exhibit that's ongoing right now. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to do that to understand the context of the expedition, what life was like on the ship, some of the main characters, things like that. This episode is essentially where everything goes wrong. So without further ado, here's part two of my conversation with Karen. And we talk then about the area where the expedition ships were first beset or, or stuck in the ice off of King William Island. And so we have here our third oral history listening station. It's another one by Louis Kamakak. And he talks about the area of King William Island uh, where the ships were trapped. And just how even in the 1970s and 1980s, it's an incredibly different, difficult place to survive because it's where all of this ice that comes from, the, from basically the North Pole gets funneled down along this western side of King William Island. So it's, it's a very difficult area to survive in because the ice is very thick and very, very slow to melt if it melts at all. And there's no seals, there's very little, uh, very few animals for you to subsist on. So he talked about how even today with global warming and we keep thinking about less and less sea ice, some Inuit man had taken their skidoo out onto the ice and it broke down and they left the skidoo on the ice and thought, oh, well, that's it's lost. And they came back the next year and the skidoo was pretty much where they left it wow. because the ice hadn't moved. And this is 170 years after Franklin. Mm-hmm. So you can just imagine what that ice was like that the ships were caught mm-hmm. in. I, I remember coming through and this catching my eye as well is obviously the, the map of King William Island, but the two little icons of where the ships ended up. Can you talk a little bit more about the, mm-hmm. about this? So the area where the ships were found or were initially deserted is called Chinunik. So the, the back of beyond, the area that's so far beyond anything that the Inuit tend not to go there. Okay. Um, so it really was the worst area in the Arctic for the Franklin ships to have been stuck. It's uh, an area that has incredibly difficult ice even today. There were a couple of years during the, the Franklin searches by Parks Canada before the ships were located where they couldn't actually get their ships to the area because of the ice. Um, so the ships came down, uh, came down the channel and they had locomotive engines at this point. They weren't true sailing ships. Okay. Um, they had only 12 days worth of coal on them so they had to use it sparingly. But I can't help, and we have no evidence of this not until they find the documents on the ship, but I, I can't help but think that that 12 days worth of coal was really what sealed their fate in some respects, because mm. they, they sailed down Pill Sound, which hadn't been explored by Europeans before, uh, probably because of the ice, the, the ships simply couldn't get into the area, and I, I can't help but think that there must have been a lead in that ice when Franklin was looking for where to go with the ships and they lit the engines and they went down that channel and the ice closed behind them. Mm. And when Franklin's searchers started looking for Franklin years later, they knew that there was a, a waterway there, but there was so much ice that it was inconceivable that Erebus and Terror could have gone that way. So based on the two icons that are here, is this also where they found the ships? No, so this is this is the the really exciting thing. So the Victory Point note indicated where the ships were deserted, which are the two icons on the map. Mm-hmm. But we now know that one ship was found in Wool Mountain Crampton Bay, which is on the Adelaide Peninsula, just south wow. of King William Island. So it's quite some distance south of where the ships were at least initially deserted by the men. And Terror was found in Terror Bay, which is the big the first big island or bay 
on the south coast of King William Island, and Terror Bay was named before they knew the terror was there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's just a really fun coincidence. <laughs> and so the question now becomes, how did the ships get from where they were last reported to where they were found? And the Erebus was found first initially because there was such really strong Inuit oral history about a ship in that area. Okay. So Franklin searchers starting in the 1850s and 1860s were meeting Inuit on King William Island and on the Adelaide Peninsula that said, yes, we saw a ship. It was some distance to the west. And the distance is what becomes the issue because the Natalingmi dialect is very different from other Inuktitut dialects. Okay. And a lot of the, the Inuit who were being used as translators weren't Natalingmute. So there's some nuances of the dialect which may have been lost by the interpreters. And then the interpretations were further interpreted by the Europeans. But the oral histories consistently indicated a ship was in that area. So a ship that was initially occupied. Um, and then had been recently abandoned when Inuit went on board the ship and explored the ship and found in one of the cabins a man with long teeth and tins of meat and, and various other pieces of equipment. So the question becomes, were the ships guided there? Were the ships remanned after they were deserted the mm -hmm. first time? Or were they drifting there? Were they just naturally carried there by the ice? And that's what Parks Canada has to, to do now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, th I think based on the fact that at least the Erebus, which is a southern ship, uh, Inuit reports talk about seeing men on board it or signs that the ship had been recently inhabited. Uh, okay. That at least one ship, if not both ships, were in re remanned after they were initially deserted okay. in 1847, 1848, sorry. What's the distance about that the map represents? It's over 100 kilometers. Okay. So certainly the currents go this way. Go, go down south towards the Adelaide Peninsula. So it could be that the Erebus was simply carried along with the ice. When the ice melted, she sank. The Terror is a bit more of a puzzle because she's, by all accounts, tucked into Terror Bay a little mm -hmm. bit more. So whether she was tucked in by the ice or tucked in by men who guided her into a safe harbor and then abandoned her for the final time, hopefully there's documents. The Terror is in much better shape than the Erebus. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And when you mentioned a couple minutes ago that the area they, the ships were deserted in is Tununik, which is kind of too icy, too rugged, just too much for Yuninui to go. Was Franklin, were the ships kind of told to stay away from that area or was it kind of too late? Well, the, the, the problem is that the area, that 900 miles that they were told they needed to, to that, that last blank spot on the Admiralty chart, that's King William Island. Okay. So they knew Cape Walker, which is on Lancaster Sound to the north. They knew Cape Her Herschel, which is on the south coast of King William Island. They just needed to connect those dots. Okay. They didn't know what was in between. Franklin was told to sail his two ships through the Northwest Passage. He wasn't told to walk through the Northwest Passage or take his boats through. It was to take his two Royal Navy vessels, his ships, and bring them from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Hey, I'm just going to hop in here for a little bit because there are some pretty excited kids running around the exhibit and it's a little hard to hear us over them. So Karen is essentially explaining that there was no real solid timeline for when the ships were supposed to get back to England, but after not hearing anything for two years, Lady Franklin started putting pressure on the Admiralty to start doing some searching. And it did, for the next seven years, but ultimately it declared all the men dead on March 31st, 1854, and decided it would no longer fund any search expeditions. That's actually an important year because that's when John Ray comes back with information about possible cannibalism based on what he's heard from the Inuit and also evidence that he's seen. While he was overseas, he sent a letter 
outlining what he learned back to the Admiralty, and for some reason the Admiralty actually published that in the papers. By the time Ray got back, he was essentially shunned from society. Lady Franklin called on Charles Dickens to call out Ray in his own personal paper, and his reputation really never recovered. At the same time, though, he brought back some pretty important artifacts, and based on those artifacts, Lady Franklin funded a private expedition in 1857 where Francis Leopold McClintock finds the Victory Point note and other critical sites that we still recognize today. And that's where we'll pick up my conversation with Karen again. This is the last word from the expedition. So we have a fancy smart glass case where the original of the note is inside, and it's a two-part note. It's a pre-printed form that the expedition was uh, told they had to throw overboard at certain intervals just so that they could, if, if any of the notes were found, people could understand where the expedition was in its progress. So the first note is dated 1847 and says to John Franklin in command and all is well. And it's written by uh, James Fitzjames, not Franklin. And then the second note was written about 11 months later, and it's a very different message. It's again written by James Fitzjames. It's written around the margins of the of the document, and it's telling you a very different story. So now why would they not have dropped this, like it, the first time it was filled out? Ice. Okay. Because they were stuck in the ice at this point, so if they just tossed it overboard, it would have yeah, sat three feet anyways. away from them. Okay, so they kept it, and then that's where 11 months later, Fitzjames kind of writes around the margins. Well. So the ships have been stuck for some length of time since since September. We know from the second at the second uh, note that was written, but uh, at a certain point in time, a, an expedition was sent from the ships to go exploring. Whether they were going out to go to the North Magnetic Pole, which was close by, or to check the condition of the ice, or just to see what the land looked like, they were sent out and they were given two messages in canisters that they were to deposit on King William Island, and the Victory Point note is one of them. Okay. So. Uh, when the expedition uh, deserted the ships in 1848, they wanted to land at Victory Point because it was a known point from, from a European perspective. It was a point on a map. It wasn't some unknown, okay. never been charted area. So they, they landed about four miles south of Victory Point at, at Crozier's Landing. So they went to Victory Point where the note had been cached the year before, retrieved it, brought it back, opened up the canister, and then wrote that Franklin had died, about 20% of the crew had died at this point, the ships had been stuck for 19 months, and they were uh, deserting them after, after deciding that they couldn't possibly survive on board them anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's the last word from the expedition. It's incredibly brief, it's incredibly frustrating, and it's been the basis for a lot of interpretation. So uh, the debate going on about the significance of using the word deserted versus abandoning, it has different, different significance in naval terminology. When you're abandoning a ship, it's because the ship is irretrievably sinking or broken. Mm -hmm. Deserting it indicates perhaps something different, that the ships were still inhabitable, could still sail if they could only get out of the ice. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's it's giving you, from the expedition's viewpoint, what their plans are. Okay. And then they disappear other than from the Inuit oral histories and from the archaeological traces. So it's, that's, that's it from them. <laughs> and then we have another case which gives you a sense of how ill-equipped they were to travel on the land. So we have a cotton strap, which has got T11 written on it for terror that would have been just put over, slipped over their shoulder and they would have been pulling this 1400 pound boat with this, this little narrow three or four inch strap digging into your chest and digging into your Good shoulder. Lord. And you would have been wearing leather boots with a leather sole and you're trying to pull something very heavy on ice and snow. And so 
one of these, both of these shoes are from the Franklin Expedition. One is just in better shape, but we have a shoe that's only the, the sole at this point. But when you look at it, there's three screws that have been driven mm -hmm. through the sole because whoever this person was got really tired of slipping and sliding on the ice and snow and decided to try to make crampons because they didn't have crampons because they weren't really expecting to do what they ended up having to do, mm -hmm. which was leave the ships and potentially walk hundreds of kilometers. And then we have the final uh, oral history listening station in the exhibition, which is an oral history about seeing the Franklin Expedition crewmen when they've deserted the ships. So it's Inuit along the south coast of King William Island that are sealing and having a hard time themselves because it's, it's this really climatically difficult period everywhere in the northern hemisphere. And they're sealing and, and feeding their families and they see these men coming towards them and they don't speak the same language and they don't understand what they want but they know they're hungry so they build them an igloo and they give them some seal meat but at a certain point in time the Inuit have to move on because the ice is starting to break up and they have to leave these men behind and they describe these men as very skinny and very sick looking and with with mouths that indicate that they're suffering from some disease, probably scurvy at this mm -hmm. point. And so these are potentially the last sightings from any person of the expedition. Okay. And uh, we take you through the Inuit oral histories that see the last traces of the men. So these are very probably the last men that were on board the Erebus off uh, in Wilmot and Crampton Bay. So they see these footprints in the snow, three or four men, and the footprints, uh, the paw prints of a dog. Wow. So that's probably Neptune. Yeah. So Neptune, poor Neptune, I'm a dog person. Poor Neptune, they kept him alive. You know, this may be 1850 at this point. They kept him alive for all of these years. I'm surprised he wasn't the first to be made into food. I think the monkey was probably the first yeah. to be. But, you know, he's part of the family, I think, at that point. And, they, and keeping, keeping him alive is kind of, it, it, it acts to keep yourselves alive. And so the last trace is that are ever seen of the expedition while they're alive are the footprints and the paw prints in the snow. Is there any <coughs> evidence for any of the men actually living with Inuit communities? Well, there's the, the Inuit oral histories that talk about meeting with them briefly and okay. giving, them, giving them seal meat and building them an igloo, but there doesn't seem to be any oral history tradition of Franklin Expedition crewmen living long-term with them. Okay. So whether the Franklin Expedition, uh, the, the, any survivors didn't want to, or they just couldn't be supported by the Inuit. That's, I mean, mm -hmm. that's something we may never answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the creepy part of the exhibition. <laughs> yeah, the, the forensic area. So <laughs> we bring you into an area where we talk about Beachy Island, uh, which was the first overwintering camp. And the three men had died at Beachy Island and they were buried. Each of them looks like they were probably suffering from some degree of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Elsewhere in the same area, we talk about how tuberculosis can be pretty easily transmitted, especially mm -hmm. in confined quarters like you would have had on a ship. So there's been a lot of debate about the effect of tuberculosis on the crew. Um, the Royal Navy wouldn't have sent crewmen on an expedition if they obviously had tuberculosis, but you can have latent tuberculosis yeah. for years before it really starts to manifest. And it can be manifested if you're doing a lot of hard labor or if you're in a difficult environment. So William Brain, who was a Royal Marine on the expedition, who died at Beachy Island, uh, had tuberculosis. He even probably had tuberculosis of the spine, which is called Pott's disease. And uh, one of the things that was noticed during his autopsy was that he had abrasions or bruising on his shoulders. So he might have been pulling the sledge just mm. before he died. So whether that really uh, brought on or made his tuberculosis worse is, is a debate. But certainly tuberculosis is uh, probably a factor in the death of some of the men. How do you 
Like there, there are three images here of the bodies that are surprisingly well preserved. Mm -hmm. Like they're not, they're not skeletons. They, they have facial features still. How were they identified? They had headboards. Oh, so, okay. Well, that so, makes it easy. Yeah. Oh, the, people knew from when they, when Beachy Island was found that who the three men were who died there. So they knew it was Joan Torrington, his date of, uh, his date of death, January 1st, 1847, 46, sorry, and for the other two men as well. Okay. All right, well, yeah, that makes the job a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, sometimes archaeology, it's a little bit more mysterious, but in this case it was like, all right. And then we have uh, a table layout, which this gives you a diagram of uh, a human body with various nervous systems and, and organs, and just talk about ideas about what might have been contributing to the to the death rate because before the ships were abandoned 20 percent of the crew had already died mm. if the remaining 105 people that deserted the ships had all lived it still would have been the most deadly uh, arctic really? royal navy wow, expedition okay. so the one of the ideas is scurvy and this is why the men were drinking a lemon juice every day because scurvy comes on when you have a lack of vitamin c mm -hmm. and you get vitamin c from citrus fruits and uncooked meats but the, the the lemon juice would have lost its potency through time so as as the second year became the third year and then the fourth that lemon juice would have been less and less effective so would have left the men more vulnerable to scurvy um, and then tuberculosis, uh, botulism has been discussed by some people as maybe another potential problem caused by the tins of preserved meats. And then just more simple everyday things like hypothermia and starvation that you're, you know, you're getting cold and you don't warm up and you're running out of food. Uh, lead poisoning has been something that has been really uh, a prevalent idea since Owen Beattie did his work. But you have to think about the fact that most people in London in that period had plumbing that was lead pipe. So yeah. a lot of people would have had high levels of lead poisoning. And then just everyday health issues. So uh, the skeleton at Greenwich, which is probably Harry Goodsir's, had a cavity. And the cavity had turned into an abscess in his upper jaw. And abscesses can actually kill you if mm. you can't get medical help. And so he might have been killed by a toothache. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah. And, and then we talk a little bit about the work that Doug Stetton has been doing. He's the archaeologist doing the land-based work alongside Parks Canada, and he's going up with Parks Canada shortly. And he's been um, recovering some of the Franklin human remains on, on King William Island and the islands around, uh, around King William Island and trying to identify who the people actually are. So in the case of one site where there's, there was two skulls, they did a uh, facial reconstruction to try to see if it looked like any of the men. Okay. Uh, they haven't got a match on that yet, but he's also got, I think, maybe 40 or 50 family members, direct descendants, to submit their DNA now. And so oh, wow. the human remains that they've been recovering, they're doing DNA analysis on and comparing them to the descendants to try to see if they can get a match. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done, hasn't been successful with a match yet, but I think it's just a matter of time at this point. And again, like, I mean, based on the photos here, Everything seems relatively well preserved, or at least you can tell it's a human skull. And is that because of the conditions, the cold, the... It, because it's dry. Okay. It comes down to mostly being dry. So these two skeletons were actually reburied by um, uh, Schwatka, who was another searcher in the 1860s who went to King William Island. So he found the, the, the crania basically blowing around in the tundra and he gathered all the bones together. That's why when you look at this one picture, it looks kind of like a rectangle because yeah. they put everything together in one spot. Okay. And so that helped preserve it because one of the, the things that breaks most easily on the human body is the face because the bones are pretty, pretty delicate. So the fact that these two men's skulls were buried 
protected them enough for Doug to be able to get Diana Trepkoff, who's a forensic artist in Toronto, to get an idea of what they actually look like. One of the questions that I had in kind of prepping for our chat today was, why still study this? Like, why? <laughs> Who cares? Essentially, yeah. yeah. It's a mystery. I think part of it is we just don't know, and people love a good mystery. Yeah, you know, if you fair. know what happened, then people care less. And we know what happened. We know that the two ships sank somewhere. We know that 129 men died somewhere, but we don't know why. Mm. And so that that led to, I think, people never really stopped looking for the Franklin Expedition. There were official searches and there were private searches and they kind of go hand in hand at times. But it was saying, where are the ships? Okay, we found the ships. They're totally not where we expected. Why? Mm -hmm. Okay, we know the 129 men died. Where's Franklin's grave is one of the big questions. Is he on the ship? Was he given a grave? What happened to him? It's just, in some respects, people say, okay, they found Erebus and now they found Terror. That answers all of the questions. Mm -hmm. And it's, no, it, it answers two of the questions. Where is Erebus and where is Terror? But it, it opens up a whole new world of, of why did they get to be where they were? Were they remanned? Are there still documents on board? You know, can we go from a situation where we know in the broadest strokes what happened to, holy Lord, we have... Uh, a copy of the ship's logbook, which tells you day by day what the decisions were, when people died, and what happened. You know, that to me is is incredibly fascinating and, and something that you never could have imagined. Nobody could have imagined, you know, in 2013 that they'd find Erebus in 2014 and then two years later, almost to the day, they'd find the other ship. I guess, just to keep going down this line a little bit, so Parks Canada made the discoveries of both ships. Mm -hmm which is obviously publicly funded through the federal government. So, and they spent a lot of money on these expeditions. Again, it kind of like, from your perspective, why is it worth spending millions of dollars to find these artifacts? Well, I think for me, Franklin is such, it's a founding myth for us. We tend to ignore the history of our own country and how Canada got to be Canada. We didn't have a civil war. We didn't have a, a war of independence. We just kind of came into being in 1867 and proceeded to grow as a country until 1949. So for me, Franklin, sort of brings everything together because it's because of Franklin that we're the true north strong and free. Mm -hmm. In 1880, the British government transferred ownership of the Arctic to Canada. And so the reason why we're an Arctic nation is in many respects due to that transfer that was a result of Franklin and the search for Franklin. And so it's part of who we are. And it's really, I think, for the Inuit, a really a reaffirmation for them of the fact that they've been in the Arctic for a long time, longer mm. than Europeans were. Uh, they understand the land, and it was their knowledge which was critical to to solving part, at least, of, of the mystery of the expeditions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, archaeology is expensive. I'm an archaeologist, I know that. <laughs> um, but it's something that I think people are fascinated by. Mm -hmm. Back to the exhibition. That is the section where they kind of go a little bit more into detail about the cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Look at that for a little bit. Yep. Hey, me again. Um, so the episode was actually done, exported, ready to be uploaded to the website and shared with everybody. And then I thought, mm, maybe I should put a warning for this next section. So if you're squeamish, uh, Karen actually goes into detail about cut marks and other evidence that they found regarding cannibalism. If you don't want to hear that, you might want to skip the next four or five minutes. So the issue of cannibalism is how do you know it's cannibalism? Um, so the Inuit oral history has talked about seeing um, 
Franklin crew members while they were still alive carrying pieces of meat, which was human meat, so that's one indication. Uh, the oral histories also talk about seeing camps where Franklin skeletons were found or human remains and seeing some which had clearly been cut up or cannibalized by other people. And then um, we also have the archaeology as proof. And so what we did here was make some models of femora or femurs and just show you what cut marks look like. Mm -hmm. uh, because people say, well, how do you know it's not weathering or, or gnaw marks or something like that? And we chose the femurs because they're actually, when you start to cut apart any skeleton, one of the things you do is take apart the joints. And so the meat yielding parts of a body of any mammal usually are the hindquarters. Mm -hmm. So the femur and, and your butt have a lot of muscle. And that's an area where people, if you're trying to get uh, as much meat as you can off of the skeleton are focusing on that area. But it's actually really difficult to get the femur out of the hip joint because it's, it's really well anchored. There's all sorts of tendons and different things there to keep the, the joint working. And so somebody who is um, trying to disarticulate or cut up a skeleton is going to be cutting through the cartilage and the tendons that are around, around the bones. And a cut mark's a mistake. Nobody actually wants to make a cut mark on a bone because it dulls your knife. <laughs> um, so these are instances where people are, the knife is slipping or they're having a really hard time cutting through something. Uh, but what we did is show the two femora with uh, some imagined cut marks. They're not usually this obvious in a real archaeology example, but we wanted people to be absolutely clear what the cut mark looks like. You mean they're not like. painted green? They're not painted green normally. <laughs> we had a great debate about what color to paint them. Uh, and it just gives you an idea of what a cut mark looks like. And then we compare them to uh, what bones typically look like when they've been gnawed by animals. So a polar bear or a wolf or a fox or a dog, just to show you the difference between a, a, a cut mark caused by a human being and a gnaw mark caused by another carnivore. The human remains, Franklin human remains, which were found in Erebus Bay, which is on the west coast of King William Island, where a lot of uh, Franklin crew members seem to have died. About 25% of those bones have cut marks. Wow. So it's, it's pretty clear that um, something was happening there. And so when people say, oh, they couldn't have done that, I think that's just a holdover of, of a taboo that we mm -hmm. often have about not eating each other. But in a situation that the Franklin crew members were in, I think a lot of us would resort to the final, the final thing that we could do. Now, do you know or is there evidence of like these men being dead before being cannibalized or did someone just draw the short straw? We don't know. I mean, that's that's something that we may never know because that wouldn't be written in a logbook. But presumably when that decision was first made, it was made with people that were already dead. Mm -hmm. But it could just be that somebody drew the short straw and, and sacrificed themselves for somebody else. We, we don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jeez. I mean, that's the thing of... You know, what's worse to draw the short straw to be the person who sacrifices or draw the straw that you're the person that kills you? Yeah, the kill, yeah that, that's fair. That kills the person you've known for maybe five years at this point, mm -hmm. and, you know, you've been friends with and everything else. So it's, it wouldn't have been an easy decision by any means. Mm. Oh. And from the forensic area, we go out to uh, the government of Nunavut very kindly lent us uh, this artifact. It's, it's a davit pintle, so it basically looks like a really big, heavy iron U. And it would have been initially placed on top of a post, and the post would have been used to help swing boats and other things onto and off of Erebus or Terror. Okay. So uh, when when Doug was part of the team, Doug Stanton, that found the David Pintle in 2014, the day before they found the Erebus, uh, it was just on an island where somebody had left it. 
however many years ago, and it was a helicopter pilot, actually, um, Andrew Sterling, who found it and said, I, I found something, come over here and look. The Parks Canada team was planning to go to that area of Wilmot and Crampton Bay within the next the next few days, but uh, this was this was a, okay, we have to do this now. So mm -hmm. the next day they came with their, their boat and their sonar and they found Erebus. Wow. Or, or at that point they found a ship. And then we have uh, a model of the Erebus as she looks today. So mm -hmm. her condition today. So she has no mass. Uh, there's no, there's very little of her upper deck that's surviving. So you can understand why a part of the Erebus's wheel was found 30 meters away from the main wreck site because she's only in 20, 25 feet of water. So you have all of this ice going over and every 20, once in a while. 25 feet, that's it? That's it. So wow. from, from the upper deck to the surface. Still? It's, it's wow. very shallow. And so at times you have ice that goes over the ship and the ice is hooking and snagging on parts of the ship. So when you look at the model, because it's an accurate reconstruction of what the wreck site itself looks like, you can see big chunks of the deck that have been pulled off and, mm -hmm. and knocked onto the seabed. So it gives you a sense of, you know, this, this ship, it's a wreck, but it's been through so much that it's really incredible that it's still in recognizable condition because mm -hmm. nobody could have imagined either ship would be as intact as they are. And, and you know, what's inside, what's yet to come, what's yet to be discovered. So now if, during the discovery, I figure one of the things was to look at the hull and to see what condition that was in. Are there any like major puncture marks that would have indicated that they were just devastated by the ice or anything like that? No. Nothing, eh? And that's, I think that speaks to the strength of those ships. Fair. That they were bomb vessels, the strongest ships the Royal Navy had. They were equipped to function in the polar regions. I wanted to touch a little bit on this part because mm -hmm. I thought this was a really interesting addition of how it's, it's, the expedition is still kind of very it's topical. Almost. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's not it's historical, but it's still there's a there are books about it. There's a show that just came out about it. There's a video game. I mean, I'm pretty sure the only time I will ever be able to do an exhibition in this museum that features Assassin's Creed is the Franklin Expedition because part of it is set in the Northwest Passage. That is crazy. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but why do you think this expedition has captured the imagination of Canadians for so long? It's the mystery yeah. and it's the tragedy. Mm. You know, if, if I think if one person had survived, then the mystery would have been not really much of a mystery and he would have been, the expedition would have potentially been forgotten. But because everybody died and because some of those people died in ways that we can't even imagine you know just how horrible those conditions were that's one thing i was wondering about what are some of the like myths and misconceptions about the expedition that have lasted that really that either you're trying to dispel with the exhibition or something like that well one of the things we tried to dispel with the exhibition was that they they didn't have names they didn't have faces yeah, you know fair. The Franklin Expedition, okay, you, you pay two ships, whatever, but there were 129 men with them. And so we wanted to bring it back to the people at a certain case, to, to the tragedy, not only for the Royal Navy, but for the friends and for the family. And we also wanted to get rid of the idea of Franklin the Fool, because hmm. oftentimes in history, the pendulum swings one way and then the other. And so we're in a, in a period right now, I think, where a lot of people say Franklin was a fool, he was ill-equipped, if he'd only talk to the Inuit. Well, he wasn't a fool. He took all of the information he had at the time with him. You know, each the ships had 1,100 books, including a lot of books on exploration and the the people that had worked in the area before then. 
they were they took the technology that they had with them and they were assigned a task and they tried to follow their task through you know and that's that's something that we, we try to counteract a little bit and also the idea that they weren't just they weren't lost hmm. I mean they were the, the lost expedition well they were lost to us they mm -hmm. always knew more or less where they were yeah that's fair that's interesting to think about for sure and then the idea too and, and the oral histories really help I think bring that home is you know if they'd only talked to the Inuit or had Inuit with them well when the Inuit saw the, the um, in the oral histories, talk about seeing these men coming towards them and giving them seal meat, the Inuit were in an area on the south coast which was environmentally a little bit more uh, survivable for people, but they were still having a hard time. And the Inuit, if you, you know, it's like us today. If you're having a hard time feeding your family, you're not gonna take a group of 30 or 40 people Fair, yeah. that you have no idea who they are, you already know they're eating each other. <laughs> um, you're not gonna, you can't help them because you have to help yourself first. Mm -hmm. And so the, when, where they got stuck was an area where they couldn't survive. Mm -hmm. And it was an area where Inuit hadn't been living for a long time either because it was just a difficult place. It continues to be a difficult place. And so you have to know, the. I mean, the Inuit in the period knew enough not to go into the area. Uh, Franklin didn't know enough about the area not to go into mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. He just knew that he wanted to get through it to, to fulfill his, his task. Now, this is ongoing until the end of September, mm -hmm. September 30th, like yes. kind of last day. What's the feedback been like so far? Yeah, it's been mostly positive. Um, we consulted with with the Inuit Heritage Trust. We mm -hmm. I, I met with their board of trustees a couple of times to present the exhibition um, as we were developing it, and then how we were representing Inuit knowledge and Inuit content throughout. And in one of those meetings, one of the elders looked at me, um, and it was he was speaking in a Nokia which I don't speak, and mm -hmm. so I had to wait for the translation. So it was this really nervous moment where he just said, you know, it was music to his ears to hear how his culture was being represented and acknowledged in the show. So that, you know, I thought, okay, that was one of my main goals was mm -hmm. to make sure that we gave credit where credit was due to the Inuit. It's a Franklin exhibition. It will always be a Franklin ex exhibition because it's about fundamentally two ships that go into the Arctic, but it's bringing in that other perspective and that other presence as well and acknowledging the role that other viewpoints and other ways of doing things play mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so that was that was vastly uh, vastly relieving for me to, to hear that <laughs> for sure and then the families to have the families here that was nerve-wracking as well to see um the fair homes and and the descendants of james reed and 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 brian spensley going through and you know, this is their family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kind of trying to give them some space as they went through the exhibition, but also being a fly on the wall and watching and having them be happy with it was important because mm -hmm. that's, again, the other side. I, I think that's pretty much it for me, unless there's right. anything else. I think I'm, I've talked myself hoarse almost. <laughs> Thank you so much to Karen for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. And if you've made it this far with all the funky audio going on, well, thank you so much for listening. Um, you can tell me if you like this episode by sending me an email or leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. If you feel like supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash T-H-R-E-E-6-0-N. Music for 360 North was written by Simon Leger, and thank you to JP and Pop-Up Podcasting for the mics. With that, I'll see you in a couple of weeks.